0: What comes into your mind when you hear the word evangelist? Maybe you think of a famous preacher like Billy Graham or Luis Palau. Maybe the image that comes into your mind is one of a television personality or that of a street preacher on the corner. Now, these images are not always positive ones. Some people have very negative associations with evangelism, so much so that even Christians sometimes avoid the word itself. Richard Peace, who's a professor of evangelism and a scholar of evangelism and its history at Fuller Seminary, he talks about this in one of his books, this negative associations with the idea in the images that we think about when we hear of evangelist or evangelism. And here's what he writes, the very term evangelism has come to have negative connotations to many people in the United States. Evangelism is often seen as coercive, manipulative, and dishonest. Its practitioners are portrayed as hostile, falsely superior, and often just plain rude. In some denominations, pastors joke about the e-word, by which they mean that Evangelism is not something to be discussed in polite theological company, but according to the Book of Acts, evangelism—the preaching and declaring of this good news, the evangel, the gospel, the good news of salvation—this is central to the life and mission of the church. The question for us is: What does it mean to preach the gospel? What is the gospel exactly? We talk about it all the time, but what is this good news? And how are people meant to respond? And today we'll start to find answers to these questions as we study the speech of Peter the Apostle in Acts chapter two. It's the first example we have, the first recorded example of an evangelistic message being given by one of Jesus' followers. And I want to organize our study of this passage by looking first at what it is that Peter says. What is his message? And then paying attention to how do his listeners respond. Now, you'll remember from our previous session where we left off. On the day of Pentecost, you will recall the Holy Spirit comes upon these believers gathered together in Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, they start to fulfill the mission that Jesus had given them, to be his witnesses. They start to speak about the mighty acts of God in all kinds of different languages. Uh, Some people think that all these talkative believers are just drunk, that all this speech in different languages is nothing but the incoherent babbling of Intoxicated people. And so, Peter the Apostle, he stands up with the eleven as the head representative, and he starts to explain to the crowd gathered what is going on. And here's how he starts off his speech in Acts 2, verse 15. These people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. Now, interestingly, some of the early church fathers, when they read Peter's response here in Acts 2.15 about not being drunk and it being the third hour of the day, some of them were inclined to think that Peter must have used this phrase third hour of the day with a deep theological symbolic meaning. But really, Peter's reference here is nothing more than Peter's just kind of doing what preachers do. He's starting off his sermon with a joke. He's saying, hey, come on, guys. It's only 9 a.m. in the morning. We haven't even started drinking yet. He's just trying to lighten things up a little bit. And then Peter goes on to give the first ever gospel evangelistic sermon. And there's three, three key features of the Christian gospel that are made clear in what Peter says here. Three things that I want to draw our attention to. The first is that we can see from what Peter says that the gospel, the Christian good news, is a continuation of the Old Testament. Peter, interestingly, interprets both the gift of the Spirit, what has happened on the day of Pentecost, and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ as being the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. He looks at the prophet Joel to find um, scripture that is foretelling this gift of the Spirit. He looks to the Psalms to find predictions of the suffering of the Messiah. Uh, this is a this is really key point. One of the earliest heresies that arose in the Christian church is that of the teacher of a man named Marcion. And Marcion grasped the good news of Jesus and thought that it was something that was a radical departure from the Old Testament. The Old Testament, according to Marcion, portrays a God who is angry and vengeful and judgmental. But the New Testament, we see Jesus who has come with this message of mercy and love and kindness. And Marcion read these two and thought, this is really two totally different gods, two entirely different messages, two radically different religions. Most of us wouldn't go so far as Marcion did, but there's still a tendency among Christians and among people outside the church to to pit the Old Testament and the gospel of Jesus in the New Testament against one another, as if the message of Jesus or, or the message of the church is somehow a radical departure from the teaching of the Old Testament. But Peter is clear. What has taken place in Jesus and on the day of Pentecost is not somehow a departure from what God was doing in the life of Israel. No, it is actually a fulfillment of it. It was spoken and expected by the prophets. That's the first thing we see about the gospel and the way Peter tells it. It's a continuation of the Old Testament. And the second feature that's clear from what Peter has to say, is that the gospel, the Christian good news, revolves around the death and resurrection of the man, Jesus. Now, it's easy now, when you have images of crosses everywhere and it seems so commonplace for us, it's easy for us to forget Just how strange it is that we as Christians treat the death of Jesus as good news, something to be proclaimed, something that ought to bring us cheer. This is, after all, the death of an innocent man. Not only that, it's death by crucifixion, the most horrific, most humiliating form of death imaginable in the Roman world. But in his speech, Peter, interestingly, he doesn't really explain exactly how Jesus' death brings salvation. Peter doesn't get into what theologians might call atonement theory, explaining the mechanics of precisely how Jesus' crucifixion contributes to our deliverance. But Peter does make the death of Jesus central. And not just Jesus' death, also, The fact that he is raised again. These are inseparable for Peter. They are at the heart of what he stands up on Pentecost to proclaim. There is no cross without the empty tomb for Peter. And there is no empty tomb without the cross. And there is no good news without both. Here's what Peter says as a kind of summary statement in Acts chapter 2 verses 23 and 24. This Jesus, he says, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So that's the second thing we can learn about evangelism and the gospel from Peter's sermon, that it revolves around the death and resurrection of Jesus. The third thing we see is that Peter's gospel is an announcement that Jesus is king. As interesting, when you look at the preaching of Jesus in the gospels, Mark, Matthew, Luke, John, Jesus is always talking about the kingdom. The kingdom of God is at hand. But in Acts, it seems to be a message all about the death and resurrection of Jesus. And you can start to think to yourself, Well, where did all this talk of the kingdom go? But actually, Peter's message here continues the theme of the kingdom. The good news that he has telling the crowd in Jerusalem is that the crucified and risen Jesus is now king. Look what he says in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ this Jesus whom you crucified. What does this mean? Why does Peter use these words, Lord and Christ? Uh, These are words that we use frequently by Christians, but for Paul's Jewish audience, they have a specific meaning. The word Christ is a Greek word that translates the Hebrew word Mashiach, which is Messiah, the anointed one. Christ then in Greek means God's anointed, or if you keep in mind the Old Testament, more specifically, it means God's anointed king. Similarly, the word Lord, Kyrios, it's a word that refers to a master, a ruler. In the ancient Roman world, Caesar was often referred to as Kyrios. Caesar is Lord. He is the one in charge. But interestingly, this same word, is also the word that's used to translate the holy name of God in the Old Testament. So every time Israel's God is spoken of, he is spoken of as the Lord. So when Peter stands up and says that Jesus has been made Lord and Christ, what he is saying has deep meaning. Jesus is the anointed king. Not only that, he is Lord. He is the one who is the God of Israel. Therefore, God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is the one who is now king and reigning through Jesus. That's the good news. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, God has become king. Really, that's the message of of all four of the gospels. N.T. Wright, the bishop N.T. Wright, who is one of the leading scholars of the gospels and the New Testament, he says that All four of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, their central message is about how God is becoming king through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And this is good news, he goes on to explain, because it means, as Wright puts it, that new creation has begun and will be completed. Jesus is ruling over the new creation and making it happen through the witness of his church the ruler of this world, that malevolent force has been overthrown. The powers of the world, which have held people captive, they have been led behind Jesus's triumphal procession as a beaten, bedraggled rabble. All of that is implied in Peter's words about Jesus being made Lord and Christ. What Peter is saying is, the kingdom of God has arrived. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, God has become king. And if we keep that in mind, it helps us understand why Christians in Acts face so much opposition. After all, if the message of the church is just about how to have a personal, individual relationship with God, it poses no real threat to all of the rest of the people in the ancient world. But these Christians, they're actually making a claim about who is the true Lord overall, And this is a claim that changes everything. It's a claim as the crowd in Thessalonica will put it in Acts chapter 17. It's a claim that is turning the whole world upside down. That in a nutshell is Peter's message. It's not a message of advice, what you should do. It's a message uh, that is an announcement about what God has done and what God is doing. Still, this is a message and an announcement that calls for a response. And how do the people respond to what Peter says? Look with me at verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? This is a very appropriate question after everything Peter has just said. Jesus has been made in Lord in Christ. So what shall we do? And here's how Peter responds. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Christians have sometimes misunderstood this word, repentance. Jerome, who translated the Bible into Latin for the Western church, translated the word with a Latin phrase that means, do penance. And a lot of Christians, because of this, thought that repentance means doing certain penitential acts. But in the Gospels, if you read uh, what Jesus has to say about repentance, he's very clear. To repent means to recognize our sin to turn away from the life that we have been living, to turn to Christ and to put trust and allegiance in Him. That's why so often Jesus says, repent and believe as a single phrase. Peter not only calls the crowd to repent, to turn from their life and to turn to Jesus in trust and allegiance. He also tells them to be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. Why connect this act of baptism with forgiveness of sins? Peter doesn't explain here. Later, the Apostle Paul will reflect on this and will explain that baptism is connected to forgiveness of sins because it's through baptism that we are joined to Jesus' death and resurrection. That that our guilt and our sin is covered over in his death and that we are raised to new life and forgiveness. Baptism is the means by which God joins individual people into the story of Jesus, unites them to Jesus. And baptism is also the way by which individuals receive this promise of forgiveness and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And you continue to see this, we will continue to see it, All throughout the book of Acts, the announcement of what God is doing with a call to respond with repentance and to be baptized. Uh, Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost is very successful. Luke tells us that 3,000 people believed that day and were baptized. And then Luke gives us the first glimpse of the common life of the early church. What were they doing after they trusted and believed and repented and were baptized? Well, he tells us in Acts 2 verse 42 that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. That's what those early Christians were doing. They were gathering together, meeting for study and for prayer. They were sharing the Lord's Supper. Luke also goes on to tell us that they were selling their possessions, sharing with anyone who had material need, worshiping on a daily basis, giving thanks to God for everything. You know, it's interesting, there's an old adage in certain liberal Christian circles that says that Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God and all we got was the church. And it's a bit cynical, but it's an understandable Because often the church doesn't really live up to Jesus' teaching. But here, in Acts chapter 2, we see that these two things, the preaching of the kingdom and the church, need not be divided. Just like Jesus, Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost and he preached the good news of the kingdom. And what we got in response was the church. This community of baptized individuals, now bound to one another in faith, who are gathering together for worship and for prayer, for study, for fellowship, who are meeting each other's needs with shocking generosity. This is what it looks like to carry out the mission of the church. These Christians are giving us a glimpse of what it looks like to bear witness to the belief that Christ really is King. So much so that they live it out in their daily lives. The church is bearing witness both through Peter's speech and by the way that they are living with one another. As I said in the last session, these early Christians, their story is our story. The gospel has not changed. Jesus is still king, and we are still called to repent and be baptized. And the church, is still a community of people gathering together for prayer, for worship, for study, sharing with one another, responding with gratitude and generosity. And I look forward to continuing to discover what that means for you and for me as we study this book together.